0: how that the first
1: group went really good it did yeah yeah Yeah. we're planning for the second one um just running into some just minor hiccups but yeah we'll figure it out when will the second one be august 3rd through the 9th cool yeah where will you take them georgetown lake sweet Yeah. i've never been there yet it's awesome once i come back from this next treatment i should be back uh like 25th of June or something like that. I'm going to go do more treatment for the leg yeah. um, and back, get all sorts of different consults. Um, I have, like, my pain is just out of control right now. I've actually had my stimulator off since the 23rd. It's odd. I have ne- yeah, I've never, I haven't been able to last longer than two days, but I turned my stimulator off. I stopped taking all my meds because I was just, I felt like they were killing me. The meds. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I had five meds changed in a single day. Like, they were like, stop these ones, start taking these ones. And I'm like, dude, you're, like, trying Mm. to kill me right now. Yeah. And when I did that, I started getting, like, these weird vestibular, like, balance-type vertigo issues. Uh Uh-huh. And I told them about it, and they were like, just give it, like, six more weeks, come back, we'll follow up. And I'm like, no, fuck that, dude. Like, I'm like... I can barely function right now i'm I'm not doing it like my pain is the worst it's been i keep telling them that and it's just like just say just take more like no no crazy so i took it upon myself which probably wasn't smart but i stopped taking almost all well yeah almost all of my meds on the 23rd and stopped my stimulator so it's just been a hard adjustment and but like some of my pain kind of feels better Um, but a lot of it's getting worse. So I'm going to go do like this ketamine infusion treatment Mm -hmm. and it'll I'll be almost in like a sedated, sedative state for 72 hours. And ketamine does some like weird stuff with your mind, body, and um, your nervous system. So hopefully like it can kind of help reconnect my pain receptors and tell like my body, like, Hey man, you're all right. Yeah. I'm hoping that that's kind of what it'll do because a lot of my symptoms are nerve re- related.
0: Cause ketamine's like a brain rewiring yeah. format, right? Yeah.
1: Crazy. So it's yeah, it's pretty wild, man. And so I'm hoping that that helps out a bunch with the pain, but I'm going to do all sorts of different consultations to get the stimulator removed. Cause I feel like that is causing so much pain and discomfort in my like pelvis area everything the way that it stimulates like it affects when I go to the bathroom it affects sleep like I can hardly wear a belt because the wires are right there on this muscle that hurts every time so wearing a ruck like I can't wear a hip belt because of it it's just it's affecting my quality of life like crazy
0: is this the first time you've had it turned off
1: in a while yeah so it's I um I haven't been able to have it off for longer than two days. Crazy. And I don't know if that was mental. Like when I would turn it off, I'm like, all oh, my symptoms are gonna come back. I know it, I can feel it. Yeah. So it's like, I would almost, I would last two days and I'd be like, it's too much, I gotta turn it back on. But this time I was like, look, I want this battery pack. I want all of these wires out of my back. Like, I don't care what it takes, I'm gonna push past. So i turned it off i marked it on my whiteboard like the time and date and i was like i'm i'm beating it so that's amazing it's still been off um and i go in. i go next week to do all my consults um and i'm hoping that i can get this thing removed because i'll be like look i've had it off for almost 30 days at that point feeling better yeah feeling better and in the sense that like i've like the, I feel like this nerve. So I was diagnosed with complex regional pain syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's this crazy nerve, nerve syndrome that it can happen on impact. It can kind of happen if you roll your ankle or after a traumatic surgery or something like that. But it basically takes over your nervous system and or sympathetic nervous system. So if you get angry, if you get depressed or anxious, like mm. it Im- immediately affects the pain in my leg. Crazy. And so this stimulator was trying to stimulate this nerve root system to be like, hey, like, everything is okay. Like, don't, don't send those signals up here and keep that pain shit down there. But it's just passing through still. So. Nerves are weird, man. It is insane. It's
0: insane. <laughs> Nerves are so weird. Yeah. So let's start with how you got to this point if we back way up. Yeah. Where'd you grow up at?
1: I grew up just outside Kansas City uh, in Olathe, Kansas. Um, Grew up there, went to high school as soon as I graduated. um, I joined the Marine Corps in 2010. Uh, I graduated early so then I could leave as soon as possible because my childhood was not going the way that uh, I figured it should have. (laughs) So I needed to go, go do something else. Do you have a military family? My grandfather served in the military. I didn't know too much about him. He died when I was younger. Uh, my uncle tried to join the Marine Corps, um, ended up getting medically retired really young. And then um, so there wasn't too much of like a, a lineage in my family. And then I, when I went in, people were, like my family was pretty excited because I was kind of starting the, the train back or the the cycle yeah. back in the family so crazy um,
0: yeah and why did you pick the marine corps
1: man <laughs> we have the best uniforms <laughs> um no so like when after 9 11 happened and then like growing up and watching following the invasion of iraq and afghanistan kind of having some of my mentors being like in an older generation, I would hang out with my sisters. I have two older sisters, and then some of their friends ended up joining the military. I would always hear their stories when they would come back. Um, I started to just get into that, like, lifestyle. I liked fitness. I, liked, I was very aggressive. So, like, fighting and any guns or hunting is kind of how I like to live my life. But then I got into some trouble. So I, I started to lose sight, but then it was like, I ended up going to um, train mixed martial arts and kung fu. And when I got there, I ended up meeting um, this legend now, Rudy Reyes. I don't know oh, yeah. if you've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he was training at this gym. His, like, one of his friends owns this kung fu gym. So he would come and spar with some of the guys that worked out there. And I got to meet him, and he's like, introduced himself. He's a recon marine who's. He was filming Generation Kill at that time. Uh And so I started watching that and I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. So then like, I started to just idolize this guy. And I was like, man, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna join the Marine Corps. Like I'm gonna be like this guy. (laughs) So it was really cool, man. Like it just, I feel like, and it's funny that I say this now because when certain things happen, especially if they're bad, like you always say like, you know, when people say everything happens for a reason, sometimes you don't want to believe it. Like the more and more wild like circumstances that happen in my life, like I, I'm I'm starting to believe that everything does happen for a reason.
0: Yeah, it's all so. leading to a greater yeah. purpose.
1: Yeah.
0: Dude, Jimmy and I met Rudy at Sorenex Summerstrong a couple of years ago. Yeah. He's so freaking jacked. Yeah. Like cut up. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. It's insane. He was like working at, we would like do seminars all day every little like five minute break we got he would be like over in the corner doing a workout yeah jimmy and i'm like this guy's insane dude yeah it's awesome man. yeah good on him yeah he's done a lot of stuff yeah because he's kind of like a actor too isn't he
1: yeah he played his own part in that generation kill um he's done all sorts of different tv shows that i've seen i i actually haven't kept in touch with him um but he was definitely definitely somebody i looked up to that's awesome yeah so you start by shipping out to basic yep Um, went to basic january 2010 when i graduated that i started out as a a mortarman in second battalion fifth marines Mm -hmm. so uh, normal infantrymen went on a uh, a mew it's a marine expeditionary unit like deployment type thing we went Floated around the sea, went all over the um, Pacific Ocean. Uh, I got back from there and then I went and tried out for a scout sniper platoon. And I went through this <clears throat> four week long indoc and then we, uh, like indoctrination, like a selection process. Mm-hmm. We got selected to be in the scout sniper platoon and then we uh, pretty much went straight to Afghanistan after that in 2012. Um, I got to deploy with the scout sniper platoon there, which was a good time and like a, a great preparation for me and my next career because yeah. as soon as I got back from there <clears throat> was actually when I learned about MARSOC, the Marine Special Operations Command. Mm-hmm. And I was never really one to settle and just get comfortable anywhere. So I was just oh, like, yeah. oh, the next best thing. Like I want that now. Yeah. And so like learning about MARSOC, I was just like, well, I'm in the perfect spot in the sniper platoon. I, wear heavy rucks all day long i hike into the mountains all day long and um work in small teams so that's like that i feel like that's the place for me good preparation yeah yeah it was it was cool and marsoc's a raider right yeah marine raiders yep um so once you graduate if you graduate from the individual training course which is our like nine month long Special Operator School, mm-hmm. you become a Marine Raider. Okay. Um, you'll hear like Critical Skills Operator. The so we used to be called CSOs, and it's still a term that's used. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, it's a Marine Raider or Critical Skills Operator. Crazy. Yeah. Yep. And how was how was selection for that? It was good. So it was in January of 2013. So I, I moved quickly through my. Career like yeah. I I didn't rest hardly at all so I was a new guy constantly which mm-hmm. was great but so January 2013 um, happened to be very cold over there in North Carolina and uh, it was a six week long selection course um, it was it was good it was a good eye opener to what I was about to get into was well, um, it super hard. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't easy by any means, you know, and there was a lot of rucking, a lot of running, um, a lot of land navigation Mm -hmm. and where we were doing it in North Carolina, like terrain association. So being able to see the ridges and the mountains and you know you can actually see fingers out here like you can tell what terrain you're on out yeah. there it's so dense like it's so hard to tell where you're at so it's <laughs> like there's multiple times where i'd be looking around and i'm like i am super lost oh. right now <laughs> so yeah it was uh there was definitely some scare like super scary moments where like you feel like you're absolutely lost and there yeah. would be times where i'd throw my ruck off and i'd be like i I don't, don't know, know what where to I'm do. At. Yeah, I don't. don't know what to do. I don't know where I'm at. Oh, but you just got to put the ruck back on and start going, because you know, like there's time limits for everything. Yeah, and, and most of the time you're just second guessing yourself. Like, you you know what you're doing, but you just got to keep those thoughts like, start creeping. Yeah, in. yep. How heavy were some of those rucks? So you had to have forty five pounds. You had to show up with 45 pounds minimum without water. Mm -hmm. I think it was without water and food. Um, And so then when you add your water and food, like you're getting up to 55, 60 pounds, and you're wearing it for some distance. Um, Our our timed evaluated ruck runs were 12 miles. Okay. And you would have to do those in under a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So I think it was two and a half hours.
0: Under that 15. Yep. So you're jogging.
1: You're jogging. Yeah. Yeah, you're definitely moving. The rock. Yeah. Did you see a lot of guys quit? Oh yeah. <clears throat> Especially like in the times where people didn't know where the end was. You know, it's like they don't tell you that for a reason because they're trying to help you or to get you to push past that like that mental barrier that you have that like it's probably I'm not gonna say everybody has that demon that comes into their head when you're pushing through something, but I'm pretty sure it's 99.9% of the people <laughs> out there. When you're pushing through something that that's, that's that hard and you don't know the time limit, you don't know the distance, you don't know where that, that yeah. sheep or that goat or that elk is gonna be, like, like maybe it's just over this next ridge and you get there and it's not there. Yeah. Like That's when people say like, dude, I'm done. I don't I can't make it to the next one like cuz I don't know if it's going to be there. They set expectations yeah. of a and finish. You just you just have to understand that like there is an end point mm. but you just you just can't stop to get there. Like you got to keep pushing because Like, you can't stop time. So that's what we would always say. You can't stop time. This is going to end. Like, we're going to get to the finish line, and we're going to get there together. So you would kind of get your your group, and you'd know, like, collectively, even though it's an individual effort, like, you got dudes that you look up to when you're there, and, like, you kind of, like, stick together. So you, you know, when those thoughts start creeping in, you, like, look to your left and your right, and you're like, I'm not going to quit for these guys either. So you can't do it on yourself yeah that's awesome yeah how many guys did you graduate with so let's see we started selection with about a hundred and thirty people and only 44 of us got selected crazy yeah so we there's two phases the first three weeks we started with that like a hundred plus people and then we went to the next phase with 90 and then only 44 of us got selected um, and then from there, you get your, your date to go to the individual training course. This is where you become or train to become the critical skills operator or Marine uh, Marine Raider. Okay. Um, and then that course is nine months long. So there was about 80 of us that start that course. Okay. How was that? That was fun. I bet. It was, it was really cool because, like, you start out with the basic level infantry training, which is a nice refresher, and then you get introduced to some other special tactics stuff. Um, and then you start progressing and like learning a lot more of the advanced techniques, like with the advanced shoot house skills and CQB stuff. yeah, and then um, all sorts of other reconnaissance techniques and um, unconventional warfare techniques and things like that. Like it's, it was. A huge eye opener to like the special operations community, but it really? was it was only the beginning. So yeah, just um, a small taste. Yeah, and this was like twenty fourteen. Yep. So I started um, ITC or the Marine Special Operations training in um, January of twenty fourteen, and then uh, as soon as I graduated that, I started. So I graduated October of two thousand fourteen, and then. Checked into basic language course for six months and studied Arabic. So I I studied modern standard Arabic for six months, and then was checked into my team in 2015.
0: And are you keeping in contact with your family through all this?
1: <clears throat> yeah, you do. You get some time off through through the course. Um, I didn't really take any vacation days, like especially during those training times, like. You don't want to kind of, I didn't want to sacrifice my time and like risk getting hurt or risk like missing days or Mm -hmm. like, because I set such a high standard for myself and like this intense goal, I didn't really want anything to get in the way of that. So I didn't venture out too much when I was going through these schools. Mm -hmm but yeah we um we stayed in contact and because of like the high tempo I've always had when I was in the military or like before that and then coming to the special operations my family kind of knew like it was like maybe once a year that we'd see each other Crazy. which was normally christmas time thank mm-hmm. thankfully I could go home almost every christmas um during my career so that was really cool That's awesome.
0: Yeah. And did when you were like a little kid <clears throat> did you kind of have a thought that this might be where you're headed, the special operations?
1: Man, I, I didn't really know. Like when I met Rudy and I learned about uh, the reconnaissance Marines, uh-huh. I thought that was super cool. Like I would have like recon posters up like um, Swift, Silent, Deadly. And yeah. I, I would always really enjoyed, you know, just like the elite groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a really small scrawny kid though like I didn't I didn't know if my little bones would be able to take it at that time so I was I didn't I don't know but I always set the high standards for myself I always I always wanted more yeah um so I just I knew that I I would at least try were you a wild kid I was yeah a little bit yeah yeah a little hellion yeah. yeah, yeah. My parents would, uh, they'd they'd be able to tell you some wild stories. I, I put my mom and my dad through some crazy stuff, but thankfully, thankfully they're still here for me today. So it's
0: fair fairly common with special operations, though, just that like uh, lots of energy, kind of yeah. turbo mode all the time, pushing yeah. things to the limit.
1: Yeah, I was I. Did a lot of skateboarding. Um, I, was, I was decent at that when I was younger. Um, snowboarding, I mean, we were in Kansas, so there's not much mountain, <laughs> mountains out there, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I did anything extreme that i could I could find. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up I, I got into a lot of fights because I was, I was an honorary kid, I was yeah. very aggressive. Um, I I started drinking at a young age. I started experimenting with other things at a young age and um once I started to go down that bad path is when I like <clears throat> is when I found that gym and I actually started like looking into fitness more and then when I really like needed something it it, it almost it came to me I guess Kind of like everything does yeah. happen for a reason again, because <laughs> I found my recruiter, the marine recruiter, and I talked to him one time, and then um, it was uh, that was kind of the, the end it. of it, like, yeah, I was Dude, just like, fast. yeah, yeah, because once I talked to the recruiter, it was like i was I was committed at that point when I heard everything about it, I told him I was like, this is if I join, this is exactly what I want, I want infantry. I want, to, I want to go to recon right away. Mm-hmm. Well, if I, would have had, if I wanted to go to recon, I would have had to wait eight more months. But the trajectory of my childhood and my high school life was yeah. going in a different direction. So I was like, look, I need to go as soon as possible. Yeah. And so he's like, well, you can go in as a, uh, just an infantry contract. I was like, all right, screw it, I'll, I'll do that. And then I'll try to go to recon later if I can. So you went and, right after high school graduation? So, I actually graduated in December of 2009. Um, I went to an alternative school. Okay. And it afforded me the opportunity to do like extra credits. And I ended up graduating six months early so I could go to boot camp in January. Because I turned 18 in December, went to boot camp in January, and then came back and walked with my class in May. Yeah. Yeah. After boot camp after boot camp that 's awesome yeah, yeah, so that was kind of cool i got, I came back in my blues and walked in the walked in the graduation, so
0: so do you feel like the military kind of saved you from a really nasty path one
1: hundred percent yeah, I had a pretty addictive personality um, i was uh, like I, I said, I was very aggressive, so I just wasn 't mixed in with the right crew. Um, I experimented with several different drugs and things like that. Uh, I didn't like authority, Mm -hmm. so it was just not going the way that I pictured my life to be going at that point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So jumping back up, jumping forward 2014, you're now a Raider Uh, through the nine month school.
1: What happens next? So I, when I was actually in the basic language course. Uh, we get assigned to our our unit or our team. So I was assigned to the Second Marine Special Operations Battalion. So we called it Second MSOB back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was assigned to Hotel Company Team Two. When I got the call from my team chief, who's uh, he's the highest enlisted on on a uh, special operations team. Uh, he called me, welcomed me to the team said, Hey man, we're going to this training down in Florida for a couple days or a couple weeks. We'll, we'll hit you up when we come back because we're signing you up for airborne school and this and this and this. So I, I was super excited. Well, a few days after they get down there, we see on the news that, uh, there was a helicopter that crashed, uh, over down there in, uh, down there in Florida and seven Raiders were killed and, you know, I didn't. I didn't know any of those guys at that time. I didn't know who it was. And then I put two and two together. I was like, holy shit, my team's down there. Mm-hmm. But my team chief ended up calling me later on, like that week and said, hey man, like the, the team's all right, I'm sure you saw. Um, another team ended up crashing during a training exercise and uh, there were seven Raiders that were killed. Crazy. And so while I'm checking into my team, all of these guys are now going to these back-to-back funerals and i'm kind of getting the uh the outside perspective of like what happens to these guys during a mass casualty like that during training as a brand new guy yeah so it was it was very eye-opening to like see you know i mean i've been through all the the training and stuff before but like the bond that these guys had like the the memories that these guys shared, the things that they said about them, you know, after they passed. Like, it it was just wild to see um, in that small community being such, like, largely impacted by that. Yeah. It was wild. It's a big event. And they had just gotten back from a deployment where several dudes had already been killed. Um, So it was just insane to see them have to deal with, with stuff like that. And then we were about to leave six months, seven months later for another combat deployment to Iraq. Yeah, that's an interesting way to start. Yeah. Uh, super unique. And it was like, that was kind of like my realization of the like, um, kind of just like take your emotions and shove them down and worry about them later type mentality. Mm because we didn't really have time to worry about ourselves. It was just like, well, we got another mission to deal with, so let's just keep pushing through it. No um, time, yeah. No time. And, and then there's that stigma behind the, the whole mental health thing when, like, if, if you feel like you're kind of emotionally wrecked, you know, if you want to go talk to a psych, like, you're worried your buddies are going to be like, well, he's just too weak, he can't handle it, it's things like that. So, I mean, inevitably, nobody goes to get help. And they don't want to lose their job or the fear of losing their spot on the team. Dudes are scared to get red flagged and being like, well, if I tell them that, you know, I am super depressed, then they're going to say, well, you need to take a break. Mm -hmm. But come to find out later on when I actually was needing help and went to seek help, um, that's not the case whatsoever, so... Yeah, it's kind Um, of a false reality. Yeah, because when we came back from Iraq on that trip, um, I went to several schools. I went to free fall school. Um, I went to our advanced sniper course, um, which was amazing. Um, And then during that next workup to our next deployment uh, on July 10th of 2017, a very similar accident happened. There was a plane crash that happened over Mississippi they killed 16 Marines, and seven of them, again, were from my company. Uh, one of them was in my team, and one of them was actually one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. His name was Talon Leach. Um, I got the phone call that night saying that their plane had just crashed, and um, these are the guys that were on the plane. and Talon was one of them, and he actually has you on his paperwork that he wants you to go notify his wife. Crazy. And... Dude, I lost it. Couldn't hold it in. I was like, Are you, are you like, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no freaking way I can do that. And, you know, like, I, I gained my composure and told him, All right, like, I'll be there. Um, I showed up and had to get in my uniform and fly out there. I would, well, they were, drive. We were, um, we lived like really close together, so uh, I I drove to the battalion and then had had to meet with those guys, had to get briefed on you know what actually happened, what to say to the family, how to do all of this stuff. So it was very formal. I had to go with a, a chaplain and then another escort, um, and you know knocking on that door in the uniform and having her see me for the first time, it was, it was to date probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. She knew right away. She knew immediately. Um, and then it sucked because now she, or then she associated me with his death and so it was very hard for us to stay friends or for her to see me again because it would kind of just remind her of, of that time when Talon passed. Um, luckily, we've been able to, like, now we're really good friends. We still stay in touch. But um, that those moments were, were very hard. Um, and now I kind of, you know, looking back at the crash that happened in 2015, it was like, holy shit, dude, this just happened yeah. to us again. Yeah. And it was real at that time. And now I'm going to seven funerals back to back. And now I'm seeing all the families mourn and my teammates mourn. And now I'm getting the new guys in. And like, how do I like, how do I now like change my attitude to not like, yeah. like be angry at these guys for nothing? Because now I'm just trying to deal with all of my emotions and somehow have to be normal and somehow still have to be a leader and deal with everything that's going on in my head Mm -hmm. because the last thing I wanted to do was go get help and because exactly that like I had a team that I had to take care of I had guys that I had to take care of and I had a job I had to do so I was like well I'll deal with it later there's no time and it was uh The way I dealt with it back then was very unhealthy. It was a lot of booze. I mean, every night, getting home, drinking until I fall asleep, waking up, going to work, coming back home, drinking until I fall asleep. Um, It was- uh, Are you single at this time? No, so I actually, um, my wife now, Hannah, her and I met um, about a year before the crash happened. So um, she had met all the guys that, you know, had ended up um, dying in the plane crash. And she was friends with Talon, friends with Sarah. Um, So she was pretty affected from that as well. But it it was good for me to have that support network, but also like this, this spouse side of things when something like that happens to us, like, at the time, we don't realize all of the stress and all of the hardship that we're putting on them because it's like, well, I'm coming home and I'm just drinking and I'm not the nicest person. Mm-hmm. Like, all I'm worried about, worried about is work. All I'm worried about is the next mission. And then you come home and you, you're drinking like that. You're, you know, you're not taking care of yourself. It was just an endless cycle of just bad habits and just kind of like... Um, destructive type coping mechanisms that did not work how much were you drinking every night oh man it i don't know (laughs) a a couple a lot (laughs) yeah 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 i would i would probably have four to six beers a night but i'm trying to numb it yeah yeah and at the time, like you, you feel like you know it's just like, I'm just taking the edge off, and the next thing you know, you're you're six beers deep, and you're yep. now you're drunk, and now I'm falling asleep, and yep. trying to get up, and doing the same thing, but now I'm hungover, and I'm slower, and I'm still going into shoot houses, and mm-hmm. you know it's like you don't understand at the time like the effect, like the compounding effects that that stuff has, because it's like. I learned about this later with TBIs after I started to really realize like, I started to slow way down after this this crash happened because mm. all the alcohol going into shoot houses, I went to this uh, this course that it's like a CQB masters course if you will, so you, you do a lot of CQB and then you do a lot of like breaching. Yeah. So the close quarters battle, so you're in small shoot houses, super loud, you know, concussions all day long, throwing flashbangs in, blowing up doors. Um, And then every night going home and drinking. So I'd have all of these like little minor TBIs from all this stuff. And then next thing you know, like my memory, my concentration, like my um, reaction times, everything was slowing down. There was times where I would forget my, my entire kit, my helmet, my body armor, everything. I would leave it at home for whatever reason. And I know I'm going to go into the shoot house. And I'm like, what in the hell did I just do? So I'd have to go home. But it, like, it was honestly at that time when I started to see, like I, could, I couldn't hardly remember anything. It was insane. Like, and everything was getting slow. I felt like I, couldn't, I would get into the team room and I would just sit there blank. like. I would look at the computer and I'd be like, I don't even know what I'm doing in here. Crazy. And it was honestly like I started to hit that, that wall, that mental fatigue, that like brain fog, like extreme fatigue. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my wife, well, she was my girlfriend at the time. And I said like, there's something wrong. There's something going on. Like I need to figure it out. So that was the first time it was in 2018. That I went to try to go get help. So I, I went to my, uh, my medical officer and I was like, hey, man, like my brain, every, like something is going on, something's not right. Mm-hmm. Like these are kind of my habits right now. And um, I went and get, got evaluated for TBIs and ended up going through some, some initial treatments then and kind of started my first round of like talking to people about like things that happened. Um, But at that point, like, I kind of didn't really care still. Um, And then I started training for this next deployment for IRAQ in 2020. Um, Did he have anything that was going to help you out? Man, I I tried all sorts of different things. Like, uh, um, I did a lot of occupational therapy and then, like, a lot of eye vision therapy. So lots of balance, lots of hand eye coordination, and then getting into, um, like cognitive behavioral therapies and like, uh, brain games, things like that. So stay sharp. Yeah. So, um, Marsoc right now is starting and developing these like cognitive behavioral, um, games and methods and things like that to help training the mind and body connection mm. so it's it's awesome to see the development because they're really starting to push like the cognitive raiders, is what they call it so it's yeah. like not only can we shoot move and communicate in the, in the shoot house and things like that but it's like they're starting to the, to train the brain to be able to do those like minute tasks and under extreme stress so like all of these different puzzles and there's like there's so many apps out there that help like keep our brains fresh like the brain hq or things like that like you can just play these little mind games that help out yeah and i didn't realize how much that would help my memory and my attentiveness and my reaction times but it was actually pretty cool man once i started doing all of these things like i really started to get fast again I started to be able to think again. Um, I, di- I wasn't taking any medications. I wasn't taking any drugs. Um, I was able to stop drinking a lot. Uh, and then, yeah, I just, I took that very seriously. So that was like my, my time for like my mental health clarity, but it was just like these brain games that oh, I would do awesome. all the time. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. And that was before your next deployment. It was, yeah, and so it was, that kind of allowed me to reset my goals, you know, it was like, because I, I, I started to get comfortable, like I didn't, I was like, well, I can just kind of stay in the team, I can manage this, I can, I can just be an operator, mm-hmm. but that wasn't like who I wanted to be. I always, I always wanted more, wanted and so, climb, yeah. yeah, so when I started this next workup, I started to commit myself to another selection. Um, I started to train up and started to like forecast that like I wanted to go to Delta selection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really started to train my mind and my body for that. I was doing a lot more rucking, a lot more running. Um, I got into more of the endurance style fitness, so doing triathlons, um, running long distances for marathons and all sorts of other different things. Uh, and before this Iraq deployment in 2020, I was probably the most fit that I've ever been. And it was great cause I was working on my nutrition, my mental health, my, Everything. my fitness. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. Um, and so I had set that goal. Like I, when I come back from this deployment, I'm going to do another year of training and then I'm going to go try out for uh, Delta Force and so I I had all of these plans, man, like mapped out. Mapped out yeah. and it was cool because like now I had like we had this stellar team, dude. Like these guys were just they were hungry. Yeah. They were they were younger, they were just like I mean, I had a team of just like beasts. It was it was really cool. How big's your team? It's so we have 12 operators and then we get attachments of all sorts of different guys. So whenever we deployed, we had 22 guys that we deployed with. So like medics and yeah, we CCT had, stuff. We had two medics. We had a, a, a JTAC, which is like the, um, like a CCT mm-hmm. for aircraft. Um, we had communications guys. We had some Intel guys. Yep. Um, We had a dog handler, an explosive ordnance technician. Um, Yeah, so we had 22 22 guys deploy.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So this team's just a bunch of studs? Yeah, yeah, man. Like we had, which it was also crazy because we had, I think, nine operators who were snipers on the team. And which is like kind of unheard of. You know, you get you'll have some teams with a few snipers on them, but we had nine snipers. We had a, a bunch of we call them master assaulters. That school that I was telling you about with the CQB and the breaching, um, we called our master assaulter course. But we had several of those. We had several um, JTACs, which are joint terminal air, air controllers um, or attack controllers. And then, um, yeah, man, we just had a really stacked. Really stacked team, and lots where, of really sharp guys. And where'd you guys deploy to? So we deployed to Northern Iraq up in Mosul. Um, we spent a month and a half maybe in the city of Mosul, which was pretty surreal was seeing the destruction of that town. Um, I was in Iraq in 2016, but just down south a little bit. so after ISIS took over in 2014, they just pushed through the whole like northern section of that region. Mm -hmm. Um, And when they took Mosul, like they took a lot of it. So when you go there, it's just like, there's so many like rubbled out parts of the village and they're still all over the place, but they're hiding within the population at this point. So it was a lot, it was a lot more to deal with. Like there was a lot kind of like, uh, you had to be a little bit more cautious when you go out in town. All the time. Yeah, oh, yeah. and there was no real like out in town runs. Like it's always, you know, you're in your armored vehicles, you're going to one place and then coming back, um, doing missions like that. And then we we moved from there to, um, to the dam, which is just a little bit more outside of town. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gave us the opportunity to train more, train our partner force more, and we actually had uh, mountains at our disposal now. So we could do just a a huge wide variety of training up there, which worked out because where those mountains were, we were able to do a lot of like cave and tunnel Mm -hmm. training because we come to find out like ISIS had kind of reverted back to an insurgency phase where they're like hiding out in caves and doing their um, manufacturing of IEDs and their planning and things like that inside of caves and tunnels. Crazy. Which was, it was wild. Yeah, that's um, wild. So we kind of had to make and develop like a sub subterranean warfare type uh, SOP, like standard operating procedure. So we would spend a lot of time up in the mountains, running around, trying to, you know, learn how to best Get attack caves. these caves. Yeah. Crazy. So it was... Uh, it was interesting um, we We played a lot with uh, with a lot of explosives, trying to figure out how to like maybe collapse the caves or open up the the entrances more and things like that so we we got pretty uh, innovative with that, but we went on several missions and we were actually once our partner force would like clear out the caves or tunnels, we would go in and we would you know. Look through and make sure that they were actually clear, and then help them collect some stuff. And uh, man, the way that they dug those things out, like the intricate tunnel systems, the, it was insane. they were just mean, using hand tools. Did you guys use that? <laughs> there was yeah, that's what it seemed like. I <laughs> so I ended up finding this weird shovel that looked like just a. There was a pick on one end. This dude would, like, it looked like he would hammer it out, chisel, and then, like, take the other side of the shovel and, like, kind of scrape the ceiling and do that. Crazy. I'm like, these guys are just little moles, man. Like, what do they do with all the dirt? Oh, yeah. They're there all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. What do you so find crazy. in these things? You'd find all sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, there was one in particular that we went in where we found, like, you'd, every time you would go in, it, you would come in, and there would be, like, an immediate sharp turn and it just like, just continue to zigzag in there. And then it would open up to like a birthing area. So there would be like sleeping quarters and then there'd be cooking quarters. And you'd see like the ventilation tubes that like go up. So that That's would be insane. another way to find them too, is if they had like Jews. fires or they're cooking, you'd see the smoke coming up out of the ground. So it, it was That's pretty wild. crazy, yeah.
0: Who was your partner for us?
1: Um, we had the, the Iraqi, um, CTS is what they were called. So, so they're working with you guys. Yep. Yeah. And they were actually really good, man. Like we would train them up to, to try to work at night. Mm -hmm. They were still, I mean, every, every unit needs work, but, um, for the most part they were, they were good. All right. Let's talk more about these caves. Yeah. Um, yeah, so once our partner force would go into these caves and clear them out, it we would get the opportunity to go in and look through them, clear them out. But then we would kind of have to do that like assessment, like what do we do with these caves now? Do we blow them up from the inside? Do we try to drop a bomb on them? Because we've tried to drop several bombs on these caves, and it's like, well, it's in the side of this mountain. You think you're going to blow up this whole mountainside? Like it's not going to happen. So. Like, okay, let's try to thread the needle with a bomb. A 500-pounder, something like that. Bunker buster, let's put it in the in the cave entrance. Well, you'd do it, and it would just open it wider. Oh, man. So we would bring a whole bunch of bangalores, a whole bunch of, like, these satchel charges, so just a bunch of c 4 stacked on top of each other and taped together. We'd make all of these, like, wild string of explosives mm-hmm. inside of these caves. So we'd be just, like shoveling bangalores in there and strapping them all up. And then um, that was actually pretty cool to me. Yeah, like, the explosive I'm, work. Yeah, I'm like in there, you know, tying up these explosives inside of this ISIS cave. Like, <laughs> like man, I'm about to blow this mountain up from the inside. That's <laughs> kind of freaking cool. So um, there were several caves that we got to blow up like that. And um, I mean, I felt like a an old miner, you know, yeah. coming out. With, Covered in dirt and just like C4. pulling this wire thing, yeah. <laughs> oh man, it was actually pretty cool, man. That's um, awesome. But very, uh, very intimidating being inside of them because there's times where you're like, I mean, you have full kit on. I would have my pistol out in front of me with my light shining, just because in Cause my, it's tight. I couldn't hold my rifle up because I can't like yeah. present in any way. So it it had to be my pistol, and now my whole side's exposed. Like, I can't really, or I'm crouched down trying to crawl. Um, So you really had to think small when you're in there. Was Uh, the partner force getting shot at a lot of times going in? It it honestly depended. So, like, these first few ones, luckily we did not take contact. Um, There was, like, surrounding villages where there would be, like, suspected bad dudes in, so we would kind of have to, you know, make sure that the partner force was able to secure the village and then go into here so then they didn't get shot in the back or whatever it was. Um, So our first few missions were were dry holes. There was nobody in there. Um, And then, you know, I I had a team full of a lot of new guys. Like I was saying, they were very hungry for combat. They were very hungry to work. Being hungry for combat and like wanting that firefight, wanting to get in that uh, that engagement, um, it can lead to just like some people being complacent. Um, I don't think that that had too much of an effect on our team, but you know, everyone just wanted it so bad. Every time we would talk about planning for a mission, they're like, "Are we going to kill anybody?" It's like, well. Like, that's not always the mission. Like, the mission is to help these guys out and, like, go clear out these caves and we'll find what we find. But we are always ready for it, right? Mm -hmm. And we, uh, I guess we got what we wished for because a week or two later after one of our missions, we got tasked with a very large cave clearance operation. We got information that there was some ISIS fighters bedded down um, in... A number of caves. They had been watching it for several weeks. They had seen seven ISIS fighters coming in and out and um, it was just where they were was in in the side of this like really steep mountain. Um, there was these massive rocks that they had dug out and you could see the huge cave entrances and some of them and then some of them you could only see that they would just walk in and disappear. Mm-hmm. So I think like by the time that we had been given this mission, they had only seen seven fighters and maybe four or five cave entrances um, and Every time we would map them out on the on the map, figure out where they are and Now that my team is tasked with this, um, we came up with a with the plan we had fifty partner force we also had to hit this village that was below um, Below the mountain range because there was a suspected guy down there so now we had to split up the the team I took the guys um, to land on the caves and and go in there so we had two helicopters that landed at the same time Um, when we landed up here on the mountain I I walked up and met the uh, the ground force there there was already guys set up there because at this point like this operation became so large we had a, a lot of people in play um all marines no there was marines there was army um navy of course for our uh, medics and all sorts of stuff like that um we we had yeah did I say, we had 50 of our partner force guys out there so 25 with us and then 25 with the other force that landed down there at the little village mm-hmm. Um, We had some French special operators with us, and then um, I think that was about it. So I had eight French operators with me, 25 partner force, and then five Americans right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And so we started our trek up the mountain, and we met the ground force. Um, And when we met the ground force, the first two dudes that I talked to was uh, one of my buddies, Isaiah, and then uh, one of my... Buddies, my old team commander, uh Major Mo Novis. He was one of the ones that was um ultimately killed in, in this mission. But he was the first one that gave me a massive bear hug right when I got to the top. Yeah. <laughs> so we were we were uh joking around because when he was my team commander and um on my previous deployment, so team by team commander, he was the captain of the team, so he was the only officer in the team that was like They're basically the face of the team. They talk to all the the higher-level officers and political advisors and things like that with the higher enlisted guys. So our team chief and team commander are the two, like, top dogs in the team. Gotcha. Um, So I met up with Mo on top of this hill. Um, Gives me a big old hug. And we start talking about, like, what's going on down there. They had just dropped, I think, eight bombs. So there was... um, I think four 2,000 pound bombs on these cave entrances. There was several 500 pounders. And the thought was is, well, hold on, I gotta back up. Yeah. Because I missed some important stuff. Let's do it. So, um, when we got tasked with this mission, like I said, there were seven known fighters. In these caves. In these caves. We have this plan set up. We have all of these dudes ready. We've been doing rehearsals. 24 hours before we're about to insert, we start getting intel that there's now eight fighters. Oh, no. There's nine fighters. We get another, like, I think, shoot, it might have been eight hours before we're about to insert. They're like, there's 12 dudes out here now. Oh, man there's 13, there's 14. Now we're like two hours from insert and they're like, there's 19 guys out there.
0: Did they know you were
1: coming? Huh? You'd think so, huh? (laughs) Like somebody talked. Yeah. Because it's like, we told our partner force or we told whoever 24 hours before we're about to go in and then conveniently or ironically, whatever the word is. 10 more guys show up, Yeah. crazy. You wouldn't, you don't think that those are reinforcements? Like, you you don't think they know we're coming? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I mean, I laugh about it now, but it was, uh, it was a very, like, kind of scary thing. I kind of got goosebumps thinking about it because when they said that, it was just like, I've been in a couple of firefights before, you know, I, I know what it feels like to get shot at. Uh-huh. Half of these dudes are like cheering. They're like, oh yeah, man, like we're about to get in a gunfight. They don't know, and you know it's it's hard to tell them. Like you, you don't want to be like, look, like shut up. Like you don't want to be excited about this because that's that's what they trained for. Like they want to get out there and they want to fight, which I I love. But when the first rounds go down range like it's real. Like you got to understand if something happens, like uh-huh. it's very real, life or death. So, um you know, the dudes were ready. They were definitely ready for it, and. By the time we get out there, they they dropped those bombs. So I think it was four, two thousand pounders, four five hundred pounders, and they were like hitting the hitting the um, right on the cave entrances. So they were trying to they were trying to open them up more and kill or injure the dudes inside the ISIS fighters inside. And they hit them hard. Hit them hard. Around eight bombs. Yep. That's and, insane. And. and There were also snipers in place and machine gunners in place. So as soon as the bombs went off, you start seeing people scatter. So now the snipers snipers get to engage, machine gunners get to engage, and then we're landing. So when we land and we get up there, I talk with Mo and we're working everything out. Um, And then now we start our trek down down the mountain. So we're at the highest peak on top of this thing. And now we we walk down the finger um, to go get them. And we had this whole systematic approach. We were basically going to set up security all around the tops of these mountains and kind of just work our way down. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at one point, there was just, you know, a couple caves that were further down the line. And then we noticed the sniper started calling out different things that were lower and lower. And uh, one of the elements ended up splitting up and getting a little bit lower than intended. Um, so my element is now clearing out these caves. I had already, um, we had already engaged a dude in a cave and now we are doing, um, we're, we're just checking out that cave. There was a suspected IED, so it took us a little bit longer to clear that. Our EOD tech had to come up there, check render, it. yeah, check it, make sure that there was nothing crazy going on. And then we got in there and made sure that that bad dude was dead. Um, did our searches, quick searches on him, and then continued on to the next caves. Mm-hmm. And so it was like that guy right there was an the testament. Like, there's more caves. There's more fighting positions than we thought there was that they were out here. Um, so now we move on, and now we're looking into like one of the main caves. And like, just to paint the picture of like how wild these things were, um, like our our first. Thing, whenever we get to a cave, is we're gonna throw some sort of explosive in there just to like kind of, you clear know, it. yeah, clear it, kind of rumble them up if there's somebody right in there. Um, so I threw this grenade in there. It's an anti-structure munition, so it's a, almost a full pound of C4 inside of this thing. It's a it packs a big old punch. Um, so I, I threw it up in there, and it and it explodes and shoots all sorts of dust everywhere, and like your kind of brain gets a little rattled and. Yeah. Once the dust clears and you look in there, it settles. There's this dead ISIS fighter in there with a full combat load, like magazines, everything. He's got an M4 like laying right next to him. There's an M16 over here, like an old school M16 next to him. There's an AK over here. There's another machine gun here. Dang. And then mounted into the wall is a belt fed machine gun like, looking down into the valley, like, these dudes were... Mounted radio, on the rocks. Mounted on the rocks. There was this small little crawl space that you would crawl up, and then they would mount it. So they so like, can't hit them. You would not ever be able to kill that dude. Crazy. If you're coming up from that valley, like, it was insane. And as I'm looking in there, like, evaluating all this stuff, taking it all in, um, I hear this hell break loose behind me. And the other element is taking contact. And it's machine guns, it's grenades, explosions, all sorts of stuff. Like it is madness right off the bat. Um, But, you know, knowing that it's my team, they're calling it in over the radio, it's all good. Um, I keep doing what I'm doing. But all of this is happening like seconds and seconds. And next radio call comes in, there's a casualty. And at first, like, it sounded like it was a partner force casualty. So I immediately continue to do what I'm doing. I'm talking to my partner force saying like, hey guys, like focus, quit looking over there. We have a job to do. Well, next thing you know, there's another radio call that comes in that says that there's an eagle down. And an eagle is a term for a US uh, operator and at that point like immediately my stomach drops and i'm like okay it's it's all right like we got a job to do like come on guys focus and then next thing you know it's like there's another eagle down i was like okay fuck this you guys watch this i gotta go and um i uh i turned and i ran like Probably in the most unsafe manner that I could have, <laughs> but I I knew like I needed to get down there so as as far away as is it? Possible. Uh, now like trying to map it out in my head or remember it, I think it was only like two hundred meters, but it was up and over another finger. And when I went up this finger, like this hillside, as I'm coming down, like I can see them in this small ravine at the at the base of this other finger. Um, and I can see all like the gunfire, the explosions and stuff like that. But as I'm walking down, I'm walking in between two caves and I'm like, holy shit. Caves like, everywhere. Everywhere. And there's blankets in this one. There's cooking utensils in this one. So, I mean, Could I don't, be anywhere. yeah. So I just walk by and I shoot through the blankets and I shoot through that stuff. And then I just keep going. Like I, I have, I have to get there. So I run down there and. There's a, a group of guys standing here at the base of the ravine. There's people frozen everywhere. Most of it was partner force that didn't know what to do. Yeah. Most of the partner force had already ran away. Um, and there's just a massive battle going on in this ravine. So I asked these guys, hey, where are the casualties? They didn't speak English. So I threw my ruck on and just jumped in there. And I see one French operator fighting Uh, next to this wall. He's shooting, he's taking cover. I try to talk to him like, hey man, where are the casualties? And he's just pointing. I'm like, okay, well the gun speaks. Like that's that's where we need to fight. So now I'm trying to climb up these rocks to get a better view. And I could see like what looked like a body in these rocks. And I, I get a little bit closer. And as I come up a little bit closer, I peek my head up and now I'm staring dead face into the center of this cave. And I mean, not a split second later, it's just now I'm pinned down. So oh, automatic machine guns just- They saw you right away. Oh yeah, cause I had my nods on too. So it was like, I'm sticking, I'm popping up like this, like <laughs> oh. <laughs> turkey peeking up. And then it's just like, uh, now me and the French guy, we're pinned down again and we're trying to shoot back. And I'm trying to kind of work my way back, but I, I couldn't really move at this point. And the French operator is yelling at, at the guy on the ground and he's yelling something in french that i later found out that he was telling him to roll he's like roll roll and these legs just fly up and my natural instinct was to run up there and grab him so i ran up gun in one hand this my right hand was free and i just start blazing like i'm shooting at this cave and they're shooting at us and somehow magically i was able to grab this dude and pull him out of the rocks shove him down like the rest of the little hill that was behind me and this dude's shooting his Like, I mean, our guns were probably burning red at this point. Um, And I pull him back, and then me and this guy kind of focus for a little bit, shooting until the other French operators come up, pull him out, and now I'm the only one in there. And I kind of, I fight until these guys could get out, and now I'm kind of stuck at at this point and fighting and throwing grenades and things like that. And then finally, th- somebody throws a smoke, and I'm like, okay, screw this, dude. i got to get out of here. So I, I run out, and but now I know that there's two more casualties at this point. We're trying to come up with a quick game plan, and I'm talking to the snipers that are above, and I say, like, hey, guys, I, does anybody see him? And he's like, I think I see one of the bodies. Just to clarify, the, a casualty on the
0: radio could be an injury. It's not always death, Correct. right? Okay. Correct.
1: So at this point, we did not know if they were – alive or dead Mm -hmm. but there was no radio um, calls coming in from them and so you know now seeing the cave I'm like okay maybe they're just staying as quiet as they can so then they don't get seen they don't get shot again Um, so I'm talking with the the snipers and they're like just walk up to this dead tree and so I'm like creeping as slow as I can and it's like eerie quiet at this point and I'm, I'm creeping up there. And then as I get closer and closer, now I see like, I see the edge of the cave or I'm basically on the roof of the cave. So like now I see the edge and into the ravine and now I see one of the bodies laying there. You're right and, above and, it. Yeah. And, but it's probably a 15 foot drop to the bottom. And so, um, I see one body and I keep moving up a little bit closer and then I see the other body laying right there at the mouth of the cave. Um, Americans. Americans. And so one of them was my team chief, Diego Pongo, um, and then the other one was Major Mo Novice, um, who was the executive officer for the entire company at this point. Um, and I sat there for seconds, Maybe a minute. Um, Diego, I knew just by the look of him, he was for sure dead. Um, I was looking at Mo, and he still had his hand on his gun. He had his other hand by his side, pushing him back. And he—I mean—he fought till the last breath that he had. But his eyes—he—he looked like he was still there. Um, So whispered his name a few times and no response, no movement, no nothing. Um, yeah, I knew, I knew he was gone. In that case, so, still
0: full of fighters. Yeah,
1: so I, I pulled back for just a second and uh, called up to the commander and said, hey man, like, this is the update. Diego and Mo, um, they're both dead. There's no easy way to say it. There's no easy way to say it over the radio. like." I'm not going to be formal about it. They're they're gone, and it's no more a cave clearance operation. It's a recovery mission now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I told the commander, I was like, hey, like they're gone, but I'm coming up with a plan down here, and we're gonna we're gonna go in and we're gonna try to get them. Um, my only thought was to go up there and just try to chuck grenades into the entrance and possibly get a lull and jump down there and grab them. Um, I went up there for the first time and peeked my head down and over into the cave and chucked a chucked a grenade down in there and immediately like the mountain opened up again and people were firing and like contact. So um, coordinating with the snipers that were above me, um, I told them every time I go up here I need you to shoot these dudes. I was like, I know I'm gonna be extremely close to your rounds, but this is, this is this is the only way. Yeah. So I went up there several more times trying to throw grenades in there, but the contact was way too heavy. They kind of shooting straight up at you. Yeah, and there was actually like an opposing cave entrance too that we found out that they were in. And then we later found out that there were more fighting positions in the wall, like of the face of the mountain behind us, Um, because later, um, so once I had, once I attempted that time, we pulled back for the medevac of the casualty, Um, after we had tried to medevac of the the French casualty. who. So he he survived. He was shot through and through in the left leg, and then shot once in the top of the head. It went through his helmet and like gave him a haircut. It was freaking wild, Crazy. wild. Um, and so we we medevacked him. He was hoisted off of the mountain. So like a, a medic came down and hooked him up to um, basically a sled, a, a skedco, um, hoisted him up. They took him out, and then shortly after that. I had called in an Apache airstrike because none of our grenades were doing anything. The snipers couldn't affect them. So I was like, okay, we like, let's see if the Apache can Get thread it. a hellfire in through there. Yeah. Like, well, we'll shoot the uh, 30 millimeter grenades in there and see if that does anything. So they shoot 220 rounds. I think it was at the cave zero effect. These and caves are insane. Insane. Like, I mean, this one had these rocks like stacked, like perfectly for them to have these murder holes, like these fighting positions all over this thing. Like it was the most wild, insane cave, it it was.
0: In- it's wild. You think about like going up in the mountains of Montana and building a cave, seems like it'd take like 10
1: years. Yeah. Just to build one. Yeah. They have them everywhere. It's, it was pretty wild, man. Um, so. Once that gun run wasn't successful, I was like, "Hey man, like shoot a hellfire in here, like thread that thing right into the, into the mouth of that cave." And those are a little bit harder to get approved. And I had to go like mark ten-digit grid right on top of the cave. I was like, "This is your location. Fire here." Mm-hmm. And so sure as shit, they they got it approved. They shot a hellfire at it. It might have moved two of the rocks. By the way. <laughs> Like, Crazy. And at that point, I called the commander back, like thinking in my own head, like, dude, this, I don't know what to do. At this point, how many guys
0: did you feel like were still in that cave? How many bad guys did you think were in there?
1: Man, I had no idea. Really? Yeah. So the, the guys that were on the other side said that they could see a couple dudes coming back and forth. Um, I think we had we had killed at least one or two already but it was it just seemed like there was an endless amount of dudes in there because it's like how are you still functioning like this after we have put this many rounds this many grenades like hellfire yeah a hellfire carl g rockets like all sorts of stuff wild and i threw like smoke grenades in there so it's like they're coughing up like man it was is insane they're cockroaches i swear (laughs)
0: Are you you hanging out with some, like are some of your teammates right with you at this time?
1: Yeah, so um, at this point now, we had regrouped and we had now a a bunch of dudes in line. So we kind of came back together and we developed a plan and this was like our, kind of our final attempt, our final plan. And we had been taking contact from different areas that we had no idea about. Like there was just, Rounds coming from all over the place and So we we basically just made this plan like okay We're all gonna get online and we're all gonna kind of push through this mountain Mm -hmm. and we're like You guys up here. You're gonna shoot at random fighting positions like and then we're gonna kind of go up here and and suppress the cave Try to get a lull and get down there and get them and so when we all got online and we all started pushing up there contact started happening they knew that it was happening so we were shooting at the cave throwing grenades again and then as soon as I basically got to the the furthest point that I could get to at the top of the cave is like I felt like I got smacked by a baseball bat in my leg and like just this massive shock went down me and I was like holy shit I get like had to kind of jump back and get down and Evaluate what the hell just happened to me. Yeah. and I looked down at my leg and now blood's starting to trickle out of it And I was like, oh shit. I like looked back at my like find my medic and I crawled over to him. I was like, hey, dude uh, I think I just got shot <laughs> He's like, what do you what do you mean you think you just got shot? And I was like, yeah, my leg It hurts and it's bleeding a little oh, bit like man, but uh, so he's like, we'll try to walk I try to get up. I was like no dude. It hurts too bad um so one thing led to another, man. He, he evaluated my leg. Um, I couldn't put any weight on it. and In the calf? Right in the shin. Um, it missed my bone. It, like, it looked like it only went into that, the shin muscle, but for some reason there was so much pain. Um, later found out that it, it severed my nerve right off the bat, just kind of destroyed that whole thing. My superficial perineal nerve, so it's one of my sensory nerves, so (laughs) it's super fucking painful. Oh, an Um, important one. Yeah. Dang it. Uh, But not not really important for motor function, so I could still walk. Yeah. Uh, It was just very painful. Yeah. Um, And so at this point, like now, I'm a casualty. Everyone's tired. We're almost we're almost empty on ammo. How long We have no water. How long were you out there? At this point, you think? At this point, it had been, we had been fighting for about five or six hours. Crazy. So the whole mission itself, we had probably been out there for eight, nine hours. And so the assault force had no water left. Um, We were very low on ammo. We were waiting for the QRF, the quick reaction force to come in. Um, And now I'm a casualty and we're trying to figure it out. And I told the commander, like, look, we still have to do something, like there's gotta be an explanation. And he said, like, you guys, you guys need to pull back. Um, they had been doing other planning that there was another unit that was gonna come in later that night and recover those guys. Um, so a special missions unit, which happened to be the Delta Force guys, ended up coming in that night, bringing like 60, something Americans in there, and um, they, uh, they also ran into a lot of trouble. Um, as soon as they got to the cave, they did some call-outs, whatever it was. They ended up going down there, um, killing four four bad guys right off the bat, uh, suicide vest cranked off inside of there, blowing two of the operators off of the cave, like where I was working. I was like, that's a 15-foot drop in they fell all the way into the bottom, but luckily nobody got um, super injured from that. They were able to recover both of the Americans, um, and then, like talking about the extensive like networks of those caves, he said that they walked in there and like as soon as they saw like rows of like different tunnels going different ways and big birthing areas, they're like, no, we're getting out of here oh, wow. now. They pulled out, they rescued our teammates, they brought them home, and then they dropped like 20,000 pounds of bombs. That might be an exaggeration, but it was close to that. Crazy. So, yeah, destroyed that whole side of that mountain right there, so. Insane. Yeah. Um, so but, the
0: the round in your shin, do you think, was that just like one of those random ones from the side of the mountain?
1: I, I think so, so like, I guess what I was gonna get into was how we found out that there was multiple different fighting positions was there was a group of our operators just to the south of me, 10 meters, maybe 15 meters. Um, and I mean, you know, well, I guess so in yards, like we'll just say 30 yards and on a steep mountainside that could feel like kind of a ways. Um, and this, these guys took contact from somewhere on the side of the mountain come to find out that our dog handler, who's a massive human, he's 240 pounds, like he's six foot four, just, he's a huge guy. Yeah. Um, he took six rounds, but didn't know because his adrenaline's going so, so much and it didn't hit like his body. Two of them hit his plates. So one of them broke his push to talk. One of them hit like right in his magazine. So it went through his mag. Um, the other one like went through his dump pouch where you know he puts his extra mags in. He didn't even know. He Didn't even know until he like w- they're medevacking me and he goes down to like talk on the radio and he looks and he's like, "Holy shit!" It's like exploded my <laughs> right on to-. his chest. Yeah, Crazy. and so um, that that was that was pretty wild to to see just because I mean I only had my perspective of, of where I was until. You know, I'd start talking to the dudes after the mission and find out this suit gets blasted a whole bunch. Yeah, it it was wild. So, Was it hard um, for you to
0: get pulled off the mountain?
1: So I I'm a very stubborn person. So as soon as this happened and, like, how chaotic everything else was, originally, like, I would have been put on a litter and they would have carried me because of how bad my pain was. Well, at this point, like, I didn't want any more guns out of the fight, so I just said, like, hey, I'll, I'm going to walk. You guys just make a, a wedge around me and protect me if I need it. Yeah. So I tried walking up the mountain as far as I could so then we could get extracted. I wanted to be extracted with my team, mm-hmm. um, but my pain ended up becoming too bad. And as I made it, I think I probably walked 300 meters, but up the mountain. Um, I didn't take drugs until I was about 10 steps away from where I was stopping the medic came up. He's like, dude, just take the fucking pills or take, take the, um, um, yeah, the lollipop. Yeah. And, uh, so I I started sucking on the morphine lollipop and then we, uh, well, so he came up to me and was like, Hey man, like, you got to take this, the pain meds. You're in too much pain. I already called in the medevac for you. Like you're going, you're getting out. So I was pretty bummed um, because I wanted to stay there till the end and, yeah. uh, but it, I mean, that was the right thing to do. So yeah, we hung out and the, the medevac came to get me. And so they had to bring in the hoist for me because it was too steep. You couldn't land a helicopter on there. So the medic comes down and scoops me up, picks me up and brings me into the helicopter and, um, medic was like how's your pain touches my leg and I was like oh shit it hurts man and then like at the same time they they hit me with ketamine and then that was my first introduction to ketamine and it was not a good one Um, I immediately like went into this like super bad trip where I got sucked back down in the mountain and I see Mo and Diego in their same spot But i could hear their voices like yelling at me and at this point i couldn't touch my push to talk trying to talk talk back to them and what it was wild right Um, away right away immediately and then i came out of it when i was like getting taken off of the helicopter and brought into like the um, uh, hospital area to get treated and so it was just um, it did not feel real, just
0: how much. With the ketamine too, I like that weird, that's insane.
1: Yeah, it it was pretty wild, man. Um, So got evaluated there, like it seemed like a pretty superficial wound at the time. Um, Seemed like it was just a little bit of nerve pain, a little bit of muscle pain. Uh, Didn't look like that much, there was no exit wound. So what I'm thinking is like, a ricochet came off and just smacked me. I we don't really know. Um, there's a little bit of stuff still in my leg. So, um it's crazy
0: there's no exit.
1: Yeah. And the, for especially for the amount of damage it did inside of my leg. Um, yeah. But I did a lot of calf raises, maybe that was <laughs> <laughs> It's all those calf raises yeah, at that's the gym. Cuz it was probably a 556. Five, it I would assume it was 762 just because of the. Well, I guess that, no, because they had M4s and M16s. Too. Yeah. So who I just. Knows? Yeah. Um, but when they told me when I was there getting evaluated, they were like, you'll be walking in two weeks. Like, no big deal. Um, I, I was happy about it. Like, cool, man. Mm-hmm. I'm super glad to get back to the team. I get back to the team house and. Uh, it was um not getting any better two weeks go by i called back up there and i was like look dude i still can't walk i'm still in crutches i need more help um, which was probably the hardest thing for me to do was to admit that like i i got to leave the team and go back and do some more treatment mm-hmm. but i thought i was just going to go up there and they were going to reevaluate me maybe give me some more drugs and then i'd be back at the team's house well, when i get up there they're like no nah, dude it's it's a little bit too severe like you're gonna have to go back to the states so now I have to call my team back, and I'm like, hey guys, like, I gotta make the call, man. Like, I'm not gonna be able to walk. I can't help you guys. I can't stay here. I, I have to go back for, for more treatment. That's hard. And so, I mean, at this point, there's just a whole whirlwind of emotions because like, to me, in that mission, like, I felt like an absolute failure. Like Those guys were in my team. I felt like I should have been the one to pull them out, to bring them home. Um, I felt like I should have been the one to, you know, keep my team together and, you know. uh, Yeah, man, I just felt like, you know, I I had failed them and I had failed the mission. And then when I had to tell them that I had to go home. Oh, yeah. um, I just felt so fucking bad for leaving them especially in that time. Like, it it was hard. Uh, But then I I ended up getting back to the States on April 1st of 2020. And when COVID was running rampant through the entire world, I guess. It had
0: just blown up, right?
1: It had just... Like like, the first shutdowns? Yeah. And it was absolutely insane because I couldn't get a flight home. And this is kind of where my well, this is where the start of all of my struggles happened too, because um, I kind of had to find my own way back home. I I got brought home by some Navy SEALs. We got to the states, and then from the states, now I had to get my own flight back to North Carolina. I had to book my own shuttles. Had nobody crazy help us out. Yeah, um, I. My wife and a few of our friends were at the, the airport in Wilmington when I landed down in North Carolina. So they brought me home, um, but I was forced to do two weeks of quarantine before I could talk to anybody. Um, I didn't get a visit from a psych. I didn't get a visit from a doctor or a physical therapist. Nobody fucking called me. For two weeks? For two weeks. And then I went to Walter Reed to do my evaluations, do my surgeries, stay up there for a month. Got no, no visitors, no calls, no nothing from the command still. That um, feels
0: so weird, dude, with like and the country shut down right as you oh get home. No.
1: It was a ghost town up there. And I mean Maryland or DC area, like lockdown. It was wild that there was nobody there. Like you could drive down the road and barely see a single soul, like everybody was inside. Um, so it made it even more eerie and weird, especially walking through Walter Reed, like one of the busiest military hospitals. There was nobody there, like, which was nice for me because I got into (laughs) appointments really quickly, but, um, That's bizarre. Yeah. It was insane. The timing. So I, luckily I had like a really good support network from my buddies. Like I got, I got those kind of phone calls, you know, it was like the people who truly mattered, like they were there for me. but the weird part is, is like, I just risked my life to save two Americans and I saved a Frenchman. And now I don't get like You're anything. on your own. I'm on my own completely. And so feeling like a failure, feeling like I just left my team, now feeling like the community for some reason doesn't want me or whatever it, doesn't it was. Doesn't care, yeah. So now all these weird things are going through my mind. When then all of this weird stuff starts happening in the in America with you know certain mishaps that ends up delaying our teammates to get buried six months later. So which works out because our team was still in in country. Like we wanted them to be back for the, the funerals, mm-hmm. but for the families, man, that is so freaking hard for them to just sit there and mourn all day long like six months for six months waiting for a funeral
0: for mo and diego
1: yeah and then it was like then there was restrictions on numbers because of covid well arlington's only letting 20 people in well the family wants everybody to be there like this is not just a 10 20 person funeral like this was a hero that just was killed in combat like an american hero and nobody can be there for it but yet there's other circumstances that are happening where guys are getting carried in gold caskets with horses. Couple hundred people. Couple hundred people and like national level senators and advisors and things like that at their funerals and then what do we get? Nothing. Crazy. Um, so yeah, it was just a wild time in the world and it really made things that much more difficult for recovery. And
0: you have just extreme pain in your leg through this whole time.
1: Yeah, so I was diagnosed with that complex regional pain syndrome, like right off the bat. So my leg would swell and discolor, become super hypersensitive. Um, I couldn't put like hardly an ounce of pressure on it because of how fat and swollen this thing was. And just, I couldn't wear pants, I couldn't wear socks. Any little type of like compression or like, breeze the weight of a sheet from my blankets would hurt like dude it it was insane Um, so all of my surgeries were to try to fix the nerve at first and then I tried all these different stimulators I had an external stimulator that was implanted in my leg it was a single wire that attacked like the sciatic nerve to try to stimulate um, the nervous system below my knee that didn't work, but it was a 60 day trial. So I had to have this thing in there for 60 days. Um, and then I was on a whole bunch of medications to try to calm down the nervous system to try to help out with my depression and all of my other pain. And, um, I kept getting reevaluated and then finally they found this spinal cord stimulator thing called the dorsal root ganglion stimulator. So, I was super afraid of doing something like that because it's a a stimulator that's the size of a dip can or the size of, like, that lid, basically, Mm -hmm. or the top of that cup that's implanted in my back, and I have four wires that run through my L3, L4, L5, and S1. So they basically run through, like, sideways through my spine like this to stimulate the nerve nerve root system that runs down through my leg. Um, And essentially, it's supposed to keep all that pain down there pretty rare, too, right it is a very rare case, and it's super hard to treat um, and people can go into remission from it that you can get you can basically cure yourself somehow it's i guess it's hit or miss, some people live with it forever. This symptom can actually like travel up through the nervous system and bounce into different extremities it can like travel up the leg and do different. Weird things and cause way more pain in different areas, so that 's kind of what the stimulator is supposed to be doing is helping with that um, so I got that installed, and I you know try to get back in, trying to get back into my normal lifestyle, you know not wanting to accept the fact that like I am hurt. As soon as I would get these surgeries, I would try to immediately like go right back into working out or trying to go walk or whatever it was. Like I, I cannot sit still for very long. Yeah. And so, um, I get my first surgery in my first round with this spinal cord stimulator, and then somehow my wires move like they slip out of my back Two of the wires, like pulled back, like out of my spine. So they were kind of stimulating the wrong part of the nervous system or nerve root system. And, was causing way more pain, but I had to wait for the eight to 10 weeks of the healing process because my back and all of the surrounding area got like infected surface level infected by the glue and the adhesive from all the surgeries. I had just developed like a sensitivity to adhesives and the cleaning agents. And we found out by the, sur- the back surgery, so... Oh, man. It, it was One thing nasty, after man. Like, it was so nasty. Every night I'm changing my sheets, I'm bleeding on my couch. Like, dude, it, it, was, it was miserable. Like, my shirts are sticking to my back, and, like, it was wild, man. Like, not, none of my surgeries went well, because I started... Um, so once I went back to get the revision... They added an extra wire and they also decided that it was time to amputate this nerve. Um, so they amputated the superficial peroneal nerve and they basically suture it into a muscle. They called a uh, targeted muscle re So they just take the nerve and give it a place to live in your muscle. So like it can kind of fire and, and rejuvenate and now it's alive from a from here They're up. They're up, they cut um, the end off. Yeah, so essentially it should be dead from here down, but the phantom limb pains are a real thing. I, It's like, it's almost like that nerve and all of the sensations are still there and it, it's ex- still extremely painful, still super hypersensitive. Um, and the stimulator is supposed to be helping out with all of that stuff, but it's like, it really, it helped to an extent, the meds helped to an extent, but at this point it's kind of pushing past all of that.
0: And this is your um, f- the first time in your life you've been introduced to all these meds, right? Yes. And what were they doing to you?
1: Slowly killing me. Um, man, like trying to find the right med mm-hmm. for like depression or anxiety or pain you have to go through so many trials and there would be meds that like would make me completely like just a flat, like numb piece of garbage. Like I couldn't have emotions, couldn't cry, couldn't laugh, couldn't be angry. Like I would just be there. Just a zombie. Just, yeah, just a zombie. And then all I would be doing, it was almost like I was more depressed and more flat, like in my own feelings. So then you you get off that and then you find one that just all of a sudden makes you more angry and more agitated. And then it's just all of these like ebbs and flows on top of all the shit that I'm already going through. And they just Um, hand these out, like like as many pills as you want? Pretty much like you, you do have a say for your path. You know, like you can be like, I don't want these meds. I don't want this. But it's like, if you deny something the chances of them actually wanting to help you are very little. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, you, you're you in this for my best interest, I think, maybe. So I'm gonna try it, I'm gonna give it a shot, but if I tell you if it doesn't work, then I, I would appreciate it if you help me. But it was almost like I would get all of these medications prescribed and then get forgotten about until things got too bad. Come back. And then I would be like, yo, like this is not working. I, on our follow-ups I told you like I don't think these doses are right and you say give it some more time and it's a trend from every freaking doctor like if it's medicines like it's like here try this well I come back and I tell you I don't think it's working and you tell me to try it longer or up the dose and try it longer like that's that's not what I'm telling you by when I say it's not working like if I'm telling you I'm more angry I'm more depressed I'm more anxious like you you would think that there's something else that you can do instead yeah. of pushing more meds. It's like, so you're gonna counteract this med with this one now. Well, now these two are making me more anxious, so let's just give him something to calm the anxiousness now. Now I'm depressed, and it's like, well, So many pills. Yeah. Were they addicting? There were there were a few that did feel addicting. I don't know if it was like the actual pill itself that was addicting or, or if it was like, I would say it was the feelings that you get from them. So it's like, I mean, oxy, right? Like those are actually addicting. And then there's other pills that kind of give you like, I don't know, different sensations for concentration or for sleep. One of those were probably my biggest ones were the sleep ones is like, I could not sleep unless I took meds. So I would almost become reliant on the meds, which felt like made me like I was addicted to them. Just to sleep.
0: Yeah and this was for like a full year, right?
1: Yeah. So I was on a whole bunch of meds for a full year. I started to titrate down, but like those, those cycles after, especially after surgeries, um, it was, uh, excuse me. It was, it was pretty rough. And like at that point, I was kind of convinced that I needed some of these meds to, to get through the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Because sometimes, you know, like, med—not all meds are bad, right? Like, to an extent, it can help you get to that clear-minded state to where you can actually work on what you need to work on. But I feel like meds are kind of just like that stepping stone for you to be able to get that little bit of clarity to get back on track, to get moving, to get moving. And then once you get moving, start titrating off of that stuff because. After a while, you do become reliant on them. And you do think like, I can't do anything unless I have these meds. Well, that's, that's not the case. Like anything, I feel like in our bodies, like if we set our mind to it, if we, if we treat it properly, we can fix these things without the meds. Sometimes you just need that little boost though to help you out to get to there. Yeah, um,
0: and, so. and your wife is with you this whole time? She is.
1: She's been through a lot now. Yeah. So she's a trooper, man. Like, whenever I got shot, um, one of my best friends actually came to our doorstep and notified her. Because the way the Marine Corps does it, whenever you get shot or wounded over in combat, um, the Marine Corps will call you. So if you're not dead, they'll call your family. And they'll say, hey, so-and-so service member has been wounded in action status unknown and they basically leave they'll either they'll either call and it'll be kind of a recording like that and then that's it so no more details or they call you if you don't answer there's already somebody at your door so my buddy already knew the protocol basically and he was in my driveway and knew that like the he she was about to get the call And as soon as he was notified like that she did or didn't receive the call, he was gonna be there regardless. But she didn't know if you were dead or alive? So she ignored that call. And then my buddy showed up. up. And we had a a doorbell cam, but she couldn't hardly see who was out there, what they were doing. And then when she saw through the window, the uniform, like she, it was like my heart dropped. Oh. And then I guess when Josh came in through the door, Josh was my buddy that came there, and and then my other buddy, D. um, They came in with their uniforms on, but no chaplain. I don't know how she put all (laughs) of this together, but she was like, because I saw that there was no chaplain, I knew that he was alive. He had to be alive. But like, it was just hard for her to believe, and like, um, you know, it was just, uh, well, two and a half years before that when she saw me getting in my uniform to go notify Talon's wife yeah um so she knew that something bad happened and I was I actually had it so whenever I got medevaced I was able to borrow one of the nurse's phones and I I shot her a message and said hey like um This is Nick. I don't have good service right now, so I'm using somebody else's phone, (laughs) but I just want to say goodnight, and I love you, and I didn't say anything else. And then Josh and them show up, because if something like that happens, you're not allowed to notify anybody, but that's my fucking wife, and I knew what was coming next. So I wanted her to know that, like... You're not dead. That I'm not dead.
0: Yeah, that's wild.
1: And, yeah, so she, she said it was still confusing for her because she's like, well, he just sent me this text. Like what the fuck is going on? So I was like, um, finally like being able to talk to her. And then like, when the doctors told me that you're evaluated and you get to stay in country. And I told her that over the phone, like that obviously didn't go very well because she's like, you need to come home. Um, but throughout every surgery going up to Walter Reed, we have, we have two dogs at home. Um, So we would have to pack up everything for the dogs. We would have to pack up everything for me. And because I couldn't walk, she would have to pack up all of my stuff, um, drive up there six hours up to Walter Reed, do the surgeries. She's getting me food, cooking for me. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, she was my caretaker for a whole year. I had another surgery, April, 2021 and it was a very small surgery i was feeling really good i was still walking with a cane every now and then and um i got this last surgery i thought everything was good i'm 10 days post-op and i get hit with this crazy infection Um, i ended up going septic i had 106 fever i nearly died um i started like violently throwing up in the house like it was insane. I couldn't walk. My leg swelled to like two times the size that it was. I uh, my pain probably increased. So my pain was worse then than it was right when I got shot. And I like having a setback like that again when I felt like I was about to be walking the very next day was such a f- oh uh, dude. It's mentally sucked. yeah. yeah because I was starting to work out again. I felt like I was being able to move again. I was so excited. And then I get hit with this thing and now I'm back in the hospital. Oh. I'm back on ketamine, back on all these IVs and all this stuff. And it just felt like it set me way back, especially mentally. Yeah. Um, and that right there though, was probably the hardest part because like, The physical issues, like, I knew that I kind of had a little bit of, you know, insight with. Like, there's there's a lot of professionals that can help out with that side. But the mental side, I had no idea, like, how bad it could actually get. Mm -hmm. And being alone all that time, feeling like a failure, feeling like I was forgotten about, and now feeling like I'm never going to be able to walk again or do the things that I love again. um, It was just... It was so demoralizing. And then during all of this, I'm getting evaluated for medical retirement. They're telling me like, I can't be a special operator anymore because of the injuries that I have because of the spinal cord simulator. Um, man, it was just like tough. life-changing events after another. Um,
0: yeah, and you were like on the top of the hill, like a Raider. Life was pretty good.
1: I felt like i was I felt like I was pretty dang good at my job, not to try to sound like conceited or anything, but like i mean I loved that job I defined myself by that job like that was me i was I was a special operator that's that's all I knew how to do, yeah, you know, and that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to do twenty years in the marine Corps or you know spend the rest of my career at a higher level tier unit um, I had all these goals like I was saying before and feeling like I got stripped of all those goals, feeling like I got stripped of my dreams. Like I could not find the the light at the end of the tunnel. I was like, well, this is all I know. This is all I wanted to know. Like, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I didn't understand what was gonna happen. I felt like I had no, no more purpose in life. Surgery after surgery, and then pill after pill. Are you drinking again at this time? I tried to stay sober as long as I could um, once we started getting closer to the funerals, um, I started to, to drink again. I started to get back into my old coping mechanisms. Um, I started to gain a bunch of weight too because of all the surgeries and then the drinking, and then the drinking didn't make the pain any better, didn't help with the mental state. Um, and it was like mid-July of 2020, I was, I was hitting the bottle hard again, and we are getting prepared for Mo's funeral. And when I couldn't even like talk or breathe because I'm crying so hard as soon as I see Mo's casket, like as soon as I walk, like after they do the roll call and the taps play, um, I, I couldn't keep myself together. I walked into the back and I went up to the medical officer and I was like, I need help now. Like full breakdown. I am, I'm losing it. I, I need to talk to somebody. It's like, I don't care what it fucking takes. Like I need help. And were you having suicidal thoughts? No, not at the time. Um, it, things, <clears throat> you know, I, I felt pretty strong emotionally um, and mentally for a while especially once I started to talk to somebody at the beginning. Um, I I felt like I've never wanted to quit anything in my life except for that little demon, you know, that comes in when you're pushing through something hard. You know, it's like there's always these, these weird thoughts that pop up into my head. And then I was able to talk to somebody. I was able to help myself. I went through, this is when I really started to dig deep into these like holistic activities Doing yoga, doing art therapy, music therapy, um, recreational activities outdoors, I was afforded opportunities to go on different hunts. Um, I went on an amazing whitetail hunt down in Texas. Um, i uh, I really started to take care of myself and but I was still in the Marine Corps at this time once. You know, I started doing all these treatments. I started to really like transition out of the Marine Corps or at least like accept that I was getting retired. Dark thoughts started to creep back in. Um, It was very hard once again and now now it's getting real. Like now I'm transitioning out of the Marine Corps. I'm going through a transition program. I had found a little bit of light, you know, like I I had, I knew that I wanted to do something to stay in the community when I was actually afforded the opportunity to go on that hunt that I was talking about in Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was there, I flew into Texas and I got to see all of these like amazing Americans, like all of this small Texas town gets together, the veterans land, And when we get off the this plane like there's all these people there this high high school had the band out like they were playing so playing as we were driving down the road and then we get to these like beautiful ranches and i got to go hunt on this high fence ranch and i'm still using a cane at this time um this family like they treated me like like a son like it was really cool man they they would drive me up to these stands. They would help me up, get in there. And then like, we finally found this monster buck on the very last day and I'm sitting in this tree stand. And uh, it was like a 200 yard shot. I had just got this new rifle, so I'm like super nervous. I'm like, well, I'm a sniper, but I don't know if I can shoot this gun. I'm like shaking, like I've never killed a buck before either. So yeah. I've done a few, um, like I've hunted a little bit. My buddy, Josh, who's actually the one who notified my wife he had been teaching me a bunch about hunting. So him and I would go all the time, but I'd never killed a buck. I wanted one so bad. And uh, this monster just walks out and now I'm like, I got buck fever. I'm shaking, I'm breathing hard. Like my heart rate's at 150, I'm freaking out. And um, so this thing walks out and I get a perfect shot. Um, Nice bright broadside shot. He goes down and you know, I'm taking it all in. It's one of the most amazing moments that I've had. I'm like, I didn't put ear pro in either, so my ears (laughs) are ringing real loud. And- um, Pretty common. Yeah, so after that, like I walk out of the thing and I have my cane in my hand and I was like, you know what? Like, I'm gonna take this opportunity. I wanna walk to this thing. Like no matter how bad it hurts, like I wanna do this. No cane. No cane. And so it was, 200 yard shots I knew I had at least 200 yards to walk so I dropped my cane there and walked up to him and dude it was the most magical moment like seeing this just beautiful rack on this amazing buck just laying there like that was for me like I mean that hunt gave me another life to just really enjoy like I mean yeah being able to harvest that animal, being able to, like, fully embrace that experience and immerse myself in that moment, like, being completely present, like, it it changed me. Like, it, it made me open my eyes to, like, more of my recovery, more of my openness. Like, I ended up opening it up to these people and being, like, being able to talk. Like, there's something about hunting, being out in the woods, being with people and sharing those moments. Like, they are just truly amazing, magical. It is. Mm. And it was it was actually from that moment that I was like I w- I know what I want to do. Like I want to help dudes from here on out. Like maybe I'll I'll start a nonprofit and take dudes out hunting. Well, when I started to really think about it, like oh, I don't know if I'll be able to like walk or hike or ruck through the mountains, but like I know where I want to end up. I want to go to Montana. I want to I want to be able to immerse these guys in the mountains of Montana and then teach these guides and gu- teach these guys and guide them through these different holistic methods to healing. Cause I know that they're helping me. Had you been to Montana before? No, <laughs> no, I hadn't. <laughs> I got the chance to visit actually during like one of my, um, I guess, uh, recovery periods. I came out here to do like a fly fishing trip on the Yellowstone, which was absolutely amazing. Um, So like my first experience was floating down Paradise Valley kind of. So pretty awesome. Oh yeah, it was life changing. But like from that moment, I was like, this is where I need to be. So I take that back. I had been out here before. Um, I proposed to my wife on top of Lone Peak. No way. Yeah, so we came out here the winter of 2018 slash 19. So it was just a year before I went to Iraq. And we, did a 10-day trip to Big Sky, so I, I didn't get to explore too much, mm-hmm. but we were down there snowboarding, skiing for that whole time, and I took her up on top of Lone Peak and proposed to her and said, hey, like, in 10 years when I retire from the military, we should come out here and raise a family. Like, Crazy. this is everything that we ever dreamed of. She's like, I'm, I'm with you. So... Um, it's happening yeah, in and it, a different yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, so we just had to speed up our goals. But, yeah. I mean, shit, when they told us, like, hey, like, you're getting out, like, there was no real hesitation. We were like, let's sell this house and let's move out there. Like, Figure let's start out. a new life now. Um, so we did it, man. Like, we didn't wait around. We, we moved out here. We started the nonprofit out in North Carolina and started developing it. Um, and it was a way for me to find my purpose again and find my drive. Like, cause I had, I felt like I had nothing anymore. Like, like how am I gonna, how am I gonna stop being an operator and just living a normal life? How am I gonna reintegrate into society and like feel like a, a normal person? Like I haven't, I don't know what it's like to be a civilian anymore. And all of these veterans talking about how hard transition is. I was like, there's no way it's that hard. There's no way, like I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I haven't told many people this, um, but like, the, you know, the nonprofit, it, it gives me a lot of hope and a lot of purpose and, um, but there's definitely, there's definitely a lot of uh, tough times still. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I did become suicidal, uh, at the end of, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, um, I never, I never thought that I would, uh, I never thought I would reach that point, and um, sitting there, you know, feeling like there's no way out, um, I just wanted to see, I guess, if I could do it, and um, I ended up Putting a gun to my head a couple times, fucking hell i can 't believe I just said that um, it's uh it 's not easy at all to deal with, and it's not it 's not easy to tell anybody this um like I'm supposed to be some hero now and I feel like I'm not supposed to be able to share my feelings or (laughs) I feel like I can't be vulnerable sometimes because I'm supposed to be strong I'm supposed to be somebody that people look up to but we're all human and when this shit hits dude and it, it hits hard Having the support network that i 've had out here has been like seriously the what I needed most in my life community. Um, the community the the passion behind the community like it's so it's so hard to live with these demons by yourself like I am super fortunate to have the wife that I do, to have the family that I do. Now the baby girl on the way, like, you know, I'm put here for a reason. I feel like everything does truly happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. I was introduced to you guys for a reason. Like, There was a reason why I didn't go through with killing myself, like, no matter how hard this shit gets, like, I don't ever wanna quit. I don't wanna quit on myself. I don't wanna quit on my family. I don't wanna quit on my baby girl, like.
0: And you're helping lots of other guys now.
1: We are, and uh,
0: you couldn't have helped them without your story, though. Yeah, you know, like the what you went through allowed you to help a lot of operators.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing, man. Is like we all need somebody to believe in. We all need something to believe in, and whether that's believing in yourself or believing in a higher power Um, sharing these stories and being able to relate to people being able to see that you're not (coughs) that you're not alone like it helps so much because our stories might be completely different like military or civilian life, but it doesn't matter that mine happened in combat. It doesn't matter that yours happened here in the States. Like a moral or mental injury can crush somebody no matter how it was obtained. And like being able to share these stories together and being able to relate and understand, like we, like you have these exact same symptoms as me, like you're anxious, you're depressed, you're hypervigilant all the time. Like, but you lived this kind of lifestyle. Like, well, how did you cope with all of these things? Like, how did you manage this? And, you know, how the hell did you pull yourself out of these dark times? Like, learning from everybody that I've met and learning their coping mechanisms and learning their ways to heal. Like, it's almost like anything that you do, like in the fitness world and the nutrition world, if you become stagnant, if you like, act like you know everything, Like that's the time that you fail. Like when you feel like you've made it, like you you haven't. You gotta, you gotta find that next step. You gotta find that next pathway. Like you gotta continue your education. You gotta continue learning and trying. Like because it's like you feel like you get a step ahead, and then something else happens. It's like now you're a step back, and now you have to play catch up. Like it's just, it's a never-ending. Battle, but you're always, you're always working on yourself. You're always working on something. And I just like, like with this nonprofit, it's been amazing to to be able to see the lives that we're impacting and to be able to see how it's ultimately helping me push past all of my struggles. Um,
0: Isn't that funny? Like the more you help people, it's actually helping yourself more.
1: Yeah it's it's been very eye opening and and very um i'm very grateful man like for the people that i've met for the people that we've been able to help so far um the team the talents reach foundation team has been absolutely amazing um like they know when times get rough that like Yeah, I don't I don't know, man. It's just community. it's been a it's been a blessing. Yeah, like these and then moving out here, finding this community and finding you know the the hunting community and the fitness community. It's like I'm I'm able to reintegrate myself into society better than I I expected mm-hmm. because I I am finding that community. I'm finding the brotherhood that like I felt like I left behind, you know. But being able to like make new friends and join these types of communi- communities and like being able to get out in there into the wilderness. Like I've met a lot of guys who are been very, very um, accepting of me and like my kind of like disabilities and helping me out with different hunts and then like encouraging me to go on, on new hunts these next seasons and things like that. like. It gives me something to look forward to and it gives me a good group of people to do it with because I don't want to do any of this on my own. I, like my own recovery pathway, I don't want to do that by myself. I don't want, like, yeah.
0: Well, you just had your first group out. For Talent's Reach, the inaugural first group of operators, almost all of them were super senior from all the different branches of the military. And they're all going through this stuff, right? Yeah. In some sort or fashion. Yeah. And they're all finding different methods that work, and not the same method works for each guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty eye-opening as well. It's like, we wanted to give a, a wide variety of different methods. And you see like, when you get these guys check in, like some of them are super angry. Some of them are super worked up, super hyper vigilant. Some of them are really depressed and quiet and reserved. All of them don't want to open up in front of a group of strangers. And then by that last day, like you see them all joking, laughing, relaxed, like super calm. And then finding the like the common interests and things from different branches. We had um operators or special forces guys from every single branch, um, minus Space Force, but uh <laughs> <laughs> but um we uh it, it was really cool, man. We had eight Eagles, that's what we we call our participants eagles. Mm-hmm. Um so we had eight eagles come out and it was wild, man. Like, you had some guys who really enjoyed doing yoga. You had some guys who were probably some of the most angry that really loved to do painting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there, we did basket, we, or, um, we made brooms. We had a volunteer that made like straw brooms, and he was teaching this, the group of guys, this stuff. And one of the guys was just extremely angry. He did not want, like this this broom was pissing him off so bad so he had to continue to take breaks and then he would come back and finish it and then uh by the end of it he was like man like I really learned a lot about myself during that time like I'm super happy that I did it but fuck that yeah um Making but, a broom. Yeah. yeah it's just it's yeah it's funny thing funny things like that that you find out about yourself too but um yeah so now it's like we're you know, pushing right along, we have our next program coming up in August. Uh, we'll have eagles come out for that. We'll be doing like fly fishing out on um, high mountain lakes and doing more yoga, more meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah it's uh it's been great, and it is very rewarding to be able to see this all come together, but also to see that there are people who are realizing that, like, that stigma behind the mental health piece, like, it's bullshit. Yeah. Like, it, it's not, you're not weak if you go ask for help. You're not weak if you're vulnerable. You're not weak if you say that there's something wrong. Like in my eyes, that's more courage than holding it all in because you're only affecting you and and your family if you're holding that shit in. Like, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. Like, you... The minute we realize that it's okay to open up and it's okay to talk to people, like that weight that's on your shoulders, it's gonna be lifted off. Like there's people out there that wanna help you. There's people out there that wanna be next to you. Like our goal, man, like we wanna make sure that like these guys know that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. Like there's other people struggling. There's other people that are willing to share their story and willing to do anything that they can to help these guys out. And it's like, I have devoted my, you know, my life and my recovery to being able to share my story and being able to hopefully use my experience to shine light like on these different types of you know pathways that you can take but also like being able to open up to complete strangers yeah i literally just told people my deepest darkest secret yeah. that i never ever wanted to say but if i don't say it then how do i know that it's not going to help somebody like we can pull out of out of any of this stuff, like we have to be willing to put in the work. It's hard work. It, it is mm-hmm. like with anything, prepping for a deployment, prepping for a hunt, prepping for a job interview, like all of this stuff is stressful and there's no reason to have to do it on your own. Like we have a team, we have a community of people who are there waiting to help you. You just have to be able to talk about it. You have to be able to reach out and be like, hey man, like I'm struggling right now. I
0: need help. It's really interesting too, because it's certainly spiritual, like thousands of years of spiritual research and learnings make it very obvious that keeping secrets is like the devil's playground. So the devil's super stoked when we're just tucking everything in and not talking about it. God knows that, like, bringing light into sin, bringing light into our struggles is, like, the the number one solution to start improving those situations. So, like, part of that stigma is so spiritual because, like, the devil does not want us talking about what's going on Mm because he knows that's just going to brew up and fester and start destroying us from the inside out. And I think the idea of like the idea behind a man getting to a point where they really don't have any secrets is like gonna really start transforming their life.
1: Yeah. It's wild. Yeah.
0: It's a good way to put it. Well thanks, man. Yeah. Love you. Love you, dude. Appreciate your story. Yeah. Um, Stoked for your next group with Talon's
1: Reach, and it's gonna change a lot of guys' lives. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me and accepting me into your guys' community. It's been awesome. Thanks for pushing me through these workouts, too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you bet. Love you, buddy. Yeah, man. Oh, Watch out, Fletch. Thanks, Eve. Oh, thank you. Oh, that was awesome.